Have you ever worked for a bully boss? If so, you're not alone. According to a survey by the career site Monster, about half of the workforce has worked for a bully boss. And if you are one of them, the following may not be a surprise. Experiencing bullying can have significant impact on your well-being, including your cardiovascular health and mental health. To learn more about this after listening to this episode, check out the references I've included in the episode notes. Now, can you imagine a bully boss who realizes the error of their ways, who leaves their bullying ways behind and decides instead to help others learn how to become great, empathetic leaders? I'd like to introduce you to Jay Guilford. Known as the Boss Whisperer, Jay has worked with numerous large corporations to improve the way managers lead and team members interact. His mission is to build a world where work is not just a means to an end, but a source of inspiration, transformation, and interpersonal growth. You might wonder about how someone who has this line of work could have possibly had a history as a bully boss. Here's Jay in his own words. I left a lot of emotional body bags, and many teams learned hard lessons as I mastered the soft skills that I have now. So what does it take for a bully boss to change their ways? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott. And this is Humans Now and Then. Jay Guilford, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Rebecca. How are you doing with all of this stuff going on? You know, taking it moment by moment, one day at a time. How about you? Oh, great. Uh, you know, I am trying to add value and make the most of the situation at hand. Right. I think we're all in that circumstance trying to figure this out as we go along. But I think um, one of the things I want to bring up that I've noticed is not only the moments of panic and toilet paper buying, uh-huh, yeah. uh, but also a lot of great moments of people connecting and really relating to how people are feeling in the moment. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to acknowledge, I've heard some good stories. I've seen some good stories, had some good interactions with people, just being empathetic for one another and what we're experiencing in this day and age. Yeah. So wanted to acknowledge that. But hey, we would love to hear more about you. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about about Jay? Well, okay, let's just start with the shiniest thing. Um, I ran away with the circus a few years back. I worked with a bunch of clowns, I like to say, and I also worked with people on Cirque du Soleil shows. (laughs) So um, my name is Jay Guilford, uh, and I am a leadership strategist, which means that I paratroop myself into organizations and help leaders be better and so that they can be better for teams so that organizations can grow. You know, um, grew up in Atlanta, lived in five major cities in the U.S., traveled and worked in cities all around the world. Really what's important to me and Rebecca, why I'm on here to run my mouth is because, you know, in addition to all the great stuff, I was a bully boss. And that's the thing that I share with a lot of audiences to kind of air my dirty laundry. The reason why I think leadership and strategies to be better leaders and teams is important to me is because I bullied a lot of people. I like to say I left a lot of emotional body bags and many teams learned hard lessons as I mastered the soft skills that I have now. So I'm not a bully boss now. I'm actually a really great empathetic leader of leaders. And I just have a lot of strategies to implement because, you know, being happy at work is important to me and it's important to other people. So that's the longer shorter. Jay Guilford from the South lived in lots of cities, 
leadership strategist, former bully, running my mouth with Rebecca today. <laughs> hey, you know what? It's music to my ears. <laughs> the bully part or the running my mouth part? <laughs> the running your mouth part? Okay, thanks. <laughs> for sure. Thanks for clarifying that. Okay. So, yeah. so as a former bully boss, what was the turning point for you? When was the point of time you decided you wanted to change your ways and kind of advocate for healthier workplaces? We did a series of, uh, you could call them 360 reviews during uh, a summer session that I was the director for. I was the director of interns for a nonprofit during their summer program. And the way that we structured it was such that I wrote all of the recommendations before we had this face-to-face 360 and all of the team members got their paychecks. So there was between 15 and 20 interns at any given summer. And so after I wrote their recommendations and they got their paychecks, on the last day of the program, we would bring them together and then they would give us face-to-face feedback. That created a safe space so that they could say whatever they wanted. There was no fear of retaliation. They quite possibly would never work with me again because they would move on to other things. And over the course of three summers in writing and face-to-face, people told me I was intimidating. And it took that reoccurring moment for three different sessions for me to understand that, hey, maybe there's something that I'm doing. So I, I finally went to a number of the staff and said, what things am I saying and what am I doing? And they were courageous enough to point it out. And that allowed me to change. It took a series of feedback sessions for me to get it. And then friends had told me that, you know, excuse my French, but I'm an asshole. And they had pointed out some things. So getting that direct feedback from friends, from a few family members, and from a lot of my direct reports helped me to change. It's good that you had that insight Mm -hmm. where you're able to hear the feedback um, that you receive from your teams and then realize over time there's a way to do this a little bit better and maybe in a little bit more of a healthy way. Um, I noticed that you do training and speaking on feedback as well. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of the angle that you approach in relation to giving honest feedback? Well, there's a number of different angles for more largely nurturing a healthy, non-toxic workplace. Feedback is one of them. And it's really important to understand that, first of all, very few managers are taught the soft skills that they need to lead. Gallup estimates that only one in 10 managers have the natural inclination to lead teams. And yet we just promote people as leaders. So I go in and say, hey, you probably haven't been taught uh, how to give direct feedback. You probably haven't been taught how to be more emotionally intelligent. You probably have not been taught to manage conflict because 82% of us will experience conflict, but 70% of us receive no training. So all of those things, specifically with feedback, What's interesting about it, Rebecca, is that feedback for us feels like conflict. So biologically, we have a natural aversion, a fight, flight, freeze mechanism to not want to give feedback because it feels like conflict. So naturally, most leaders don't want to tell direct reports things that they feel are unpopular. And yet, if you want people to be better, you have to point out the ways that they can be better in very direct and candid ways. So it's necessary to grow the business. And that's the bottom line math of it. If you want team members to do better, you have to tell them where they're failing and how to do better in very explicit and direct ways. And yet, biologically, we are wired to not want to do that, fight, flight, freeze, and we're not taught to do it. So yeah, feedback is really important to me. I fortunately am super candid. And I fortunately have a high tolerance for candid feedback for myself. 
Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions about the future a little bit and also technology mm-hmm. in the workplace. Yeah. And so I'd like to know kind of what are the things that you're optimistic for in the future? Oh, well, we can't ignore the situation we're facing now with uh, coronavirus. You know, people feel afraid and some people are taking measures and that's really great. What is optimistic about that is that we see large name brand companies taking measures to protect their teams and the world and even canceling things that quite possibly seem better for business. Because the message that we're getting at least is that I want to protect my team members. I want to protect the world. Google just created a fund for team members who have symptoms of COVID. That is That heartens me to see that we've made a shift where businesses are now more socially aware and there's a lot more of those efforts and a lot of social justice efforts. So um, I was talking to a friend, a few people over the course of the week, and it's really kind of a glass half empty, glass half full part. And one friend said, well, you know, it's just about the money and it's not really because they care. I was like, well, I don't know if that's true. I would like to think that businesses care. (laughs) So that's that's what I'm focusing on. And I don't know if they don't care. I know the messages say that they care. And that is heartening to me for the future. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And I'm wondering too, kind of on that point of companies starting to feel more empathetic um, and feel more maybe aware. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a great conversation a few weeks ago. And one of the things you talked about about this point in time is kind of awareness of diversity inclusion initiatives within organizations and also kind of your own general awareness of the various movements aligned mm-hmm. to that trend towards diversity and inclusion. Do you feel like that is a contributing factor to how organizations are handling this crisis? Yes, I do. I feel like the Me Too movement as a point in gender equity and diversity has been really informative to me as someone who identifies as male. Yeah, because there are things I just didn't know as a man. And because some women had the courage to speak out in the midst of real and present danger, I've learned a lot and the world has learned a lot. And what's also important about that is that organizations have responded in ways that I feel like are very responsible. You know, they've dismissed people that have been perpetrators and offenders, and they've they're working to support pay equity and gender equity and other forms. So, yeah, diversity and inclusion. I can see that that I think specifically the Me Too movement has reinvigorated our social justice awareness in small and large large corporations. And and it's unfortunate for the victims. It is learning for people who are in majority groups, whether you're in a racial majority group, uh, a gender majority group, or a nationality majority group. I think it's taught us some valuable lessons. So yeah, I really feel positive about the level of social justice that that is activated now in the world. Right. I think that trend is important. You know, we think a lot about the future, of course. We think about flashy technology. Yes. We think about a lot of things that will make our lives more simple. Mm -hmm. But um, the reality is, is those elements that you're talking about help connect us better uh, to one another, which is really critical. And I do think a part of what's happening with technology, especially social media, is that now we have more of a platform. More individuals have a megaphone. So if some, and this is something I coach on a lot, like with bullying, 
if something happens to you at work, now there is more of a critical mass for you to rectify that. So first of all, a lot of corporations are more aware of social justice and whether the impetus is I want to protect the reputation of my brand or whether the impetus is I really believe that we should have non-toxic workplaces. Now more than ever, you have um, mechanisms, technology specifically, to force organizations to respond. So, you know, I've, I just did a few uh, coaching sessions with people and some of, uh, one person said, well, I don't feel like there's anything I can do. I said, now more than ever, there is something you can do. And technology has allowed us to do that. Like you can just, even the fact that you can reach out to uh, people via email, or you can contact the EEOC from anywhere in the country. The fact that you, if you had to, you could take to Twitter and create your own campaign so technology has really given a megaphone to smaller voices. Yeah, it's important to think about how it actually can be used in a way to help bring us together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that is happening now, of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic, more workers working from home. Oh, yeah. So many large organizations have the masses of their workforces working remotely from home. So technology has now become integral to their days, regardless of what type of work they're doing mm -hmm. um, in some instances. So I'd be interested to know your perspective on that. How do you think that that's going to turn out? It's kind of a mass experiment. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering your insights on that. Well, first of all, that's a great, I just did a post. So Rebecca, I'll share this with you and you can share it too, with your listeners about working from home and strategies. First of all, it's so great that we have this in place. And some companies maybe are mandating it and some companies are allowing people to elect into it. Really great. Now, when you put that in place, you got to have some strategy. So one thing that I've seen with organizations that they can rectify now is that they've sent workers home without a strategy. So I have a couple of ideas about that and then some predictions. First, if you send remote workers home, realize that your leaders, this may be their first time leading larger remote worker teams. So they need strategies. One, you got to meet with the team in some kind of way, maybe using technology to strategize around that, to say, hey, we're all going to work remotely. First of all, check in with them because they're people and ask, how are you feeling about the situation we're facing in the world? They're people. Check in with them as humans. And then secondly, strategize around the business. What do we have in the next days, weeks, months? That we, or that's on the table, what are the benchmarks and what are the deliverables for that so that they can be successful at home. The other thing is before you send them home, be sure that they have the technology on their devices and that they know how to use them, that they're fluent in whatever web apps you're going to use, video conferences, set up some rules for engagement, say, you know, every time we talk, we are going to host our conversations on video. The other thing that's really important is that there, there's one thing that every leader should continue with their remote workers, and that's the one-on-one -on -one check-ins, because that's going to create some standardization and some predictability when people are working from home. I got a couple of more thoughts, so I'm going to rant, Rebecca. So Go for it. The other, you also want to check in with team members to see what their situation is outside of the office, because you know, you might have that team member that's going home, but we, we often think about the team member that's going home to a family and kids. Realize that that can be distracting in some way to the work, not that families are distracting. They're now working from home, schools are closed, kids are there. We have to work out a strategy for, for that. 
what we forget is that there are many team members that might be going home to home aloneness and that can create isolation. So we want to think about how we support those team members if they are going home to no one. And that's going to be the situation for days or weeks. How do you support them? And I guess the last thing I would say is I have done a lot of remote work. I have led teams from different places in the world to execute high stakes events. So you really want to have some operating procedures in place and expectations. Like you really want to have clear KPIs and clear deliverables. So KPIs and deliverables are two different things. KPIs are the benchmarks that lead to deliverables. I need to see this, 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 and this, and this towards a deliverable. The deliverable is the end work product. So you want to clarify that so that you can set your team members up for success And when we're talking about our situation in the world and the crisis, it may sound unpopular to say when you send people home or to work remotely, you should hold them accountable. That sounds unpopular. I want to clarify. The reason why you want to hold them accountable is because you want them to be successful at work. You want the business to survive or even thrive so that they have something to return to. So if you send them home without a strategy and there's no accountability measures, you're setting the business up for failure and then they have nothing to return to when things return, quote unquote, back to normal. So those are the strategies people should put in place. And I would also say in terms of a prediction, it's going to normalize working remotely, which will satisfy a lot of millennials and other people who want more independence while they maintain success working in organizations. So I think there's going to be more normalization around this and lessons learned about how to do this better. Right. Because I know a lot of the trends toward the future are really kind of leading towards more remote work Mm -hmm. and more organizations working for an expanded capability for folks to work remotely. Yeah. So it's a good opportunity for us to see how that pans out. Yeah. And I, I also think what's interesting about that is right now we're in a situation where conferences are being canceled. As a people to people person, there are things that you can do when you bring all brains into a room that you can't do working remotely. There is a thing called culture clashes where you're in spaces with other people. You bump into people and have conversations in spaces that you can't, you just don't do with technology. There are people who are introverts who probably work better independently. There are people who are extroverts who probably work better when they're in a social setting. So it is still gonna be very important to bring people together face-to-face if we can do that again in the future. We don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater. We wanna say, yeah, remote work is great. And there are some real logical reasons why you wanna have all brains in a room. Brainstorming together in person and asking those questions and reading, reading body language is much different than trying to have a brainstorm session digitally. Right. And I completely agree with you on that point. And I think that going kind of going back to your point about the importance of maintaining one-on-ones between leaders and employees so that leaders can really understand how this uh, working from home environment might be impacting them and not make assumptions uh, that it's good or bad. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's you said it. It's not good or bad. It's, it has impact. I'll buy that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, let me have you react to this. One of the mitigating factors in relation to more remote workers, or even just the, let's just call it the conference problem we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. Of course, a lot of the live conferences are moving to virtual conferences. In the future, there's a lot of folks that envision conferences happening remotely through virtual reality. And so if you think about an environment in the future where folks are working from home, 
meeting with other people in a virtual reality environment. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? How would you react to that circumstance? You know, I, I think that we go with the times. I'm not a millennial, as you may have guessed. So <laughs> I've been I've been in this game for you know over a decade. So um, one thing that I've seen with the, with emerging trends is that people who are not, not millennials and haven't grown up natively with technology rail against the things that are happening now. If it's the future, it's the future. There are some great parts about it we should embrace, and there are some parts about it that we should question as we move forward. I think that virtual technology is a great opportunity to allow for people to, it might uh, equalize the playing field in some ways there. Maybe it um, reduces the cost of travel and then organizations that don't have those large budgets can still attend these virtual conferences. And in addition for me, there is still something about physical environment. There's still something transformative about tactility. There's still something about transformative about face-to-face and the nonverbal communication that you have when you're reading and exchanging body language. There's still something important about doing things over food. There's still something important about physically seeing products and um, seeing a service at work. So I agree that more virtual conferences will arise. I also agree, agree that there's still a need for a CES and all of the individual company or an organization and trade shows and conferences. It's necessary to see the product. And there's something transformative about going to a different part of the world and experiencing work and exchanges in different parts of the world. So we forget that one of the reasons why people like to go to conferences because there's a built-in vacation element in that. So I see virtual rising and I do still see the benefits of the interactive face-to-face stuff. I think there's a lot of benefit to face-to-face mm-hmm. interaction with people that sometimes we underestimate yeah. um, as technology continues to um, increase. And I'm yeah. wondering if when we come out of this COVID-19 uh, pandemic and people return to the workplace, what that experience will will feel like and what we, we learn from that. Uh, yeah. And I would say a thing to do, and I'm creating a podcast for this, a thing to do is when you return to the workplace, first of all, gather your team and strategize about if returning is the best thing for the business. Maybe if you've learned that, wow, a lot of people are more productive when they work from home and when they return, gather people and have a re-entry strategy. Just walking into the office without ceremony and then walking back to your desk, your dusty desk, is probably not the best way to build community. So this is another moment where you can build community, exercise those soft skills, and really answer important questions. Because people might say, hey, I enjoy working from home. Can I do that every day? I would also say it's a good time to gather some metrics about productivity. So you can see individually people who are more productive and individually people who work better when they're in an office environment. And that's a good time to gather that data and to manage your teams using the data so that everyone can be more effective. So there's a lot of good stuff we can do if we strategize around it. And I want to say these words very clinically, quote unquote, take advantage of a situation that's disadvantageous 
for us already. So what can we learn from this, given this is where we are? Absolutely, because there might not be another point in time where we're kind of thrown into this environment kind of unexpectedly. Hopefully not, yeah. <laughs> yeah hopefully not. I should yeah. probably knock on wood. Yeah. Um, but having so many people from large organizations working from home and, oh, by the way, their kids are home mm-hmm. e-learning at the same time for an extended yeah. period of time. Right. And, oh, by the way, college students are doing the same. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of change. So let me ask you this. Um, we look forward into the future what are some things that concern you? What what would be a concern you might have about the future? Wow. Um, I'm always optimistic. I don't even say hopelessly. I'm optimistic because I feel like we're ever evolving towards more positive directions. So one answer is I have no concerns. I trust the world. I trust the universe. Organizations are doing better than ever. So that's one part of it. If I did have a concern, it would be that I have yet to see the critical mass of organizations that are really understanding the value of, I think you call them essential skills, right, Rebecca? Not soft That's skills. Right. Yeah. That's so, right. um, well, first of all, maybe I'm going to turn it on you. Tell us why you call it essential. I already know in our conversation, you called it essential right. skills and not soft skills. I'm going to rift off that. Yeah. Uh Yeah, absolutely. So um, the reason I moved to the terminology to essential skills is because I realized that soft skills were becoming deprioritized in organizations. And so when people are looking for folks to fill role, Mm -hmm. they usually fill out job descriptions based on technical skill Mm -hmm. um, or experience um, and might kind of gloss over or not prioritize those skills that really have to do with uh, the ability to interact with people effectively. Yeah. And so I feel like the term soft skills kind of reinforces that deprioritization. Yeah. Um, and so instead, I want to flip the script a little bit and let people to think more critically about what are the essential skills that people need to be successful in a workplace or on a team. Um, and also think about the adaptability that people will need to have in the future. Because uh, the reality is, if we have a technical skill today, that skill will likely be obsolete in a couple of years. Thank you. You just, they, I, we're done. You just said it. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. What I, I'm waiting to see, my concern is that I've yet to see the critical mass of organizations that put those skills first, because we don't know what tech, technical skills you need in the future. We do know that you're going to need to learn how to manage conflict. We do know that you're going to need to learn how to give feedback. We do know that you're going to need to learn how to manage teams in person or remotely. So those things are probably not going to change. We do know that all things being equal, people are going to be working in organizations in some way. What is interesting is that I still see the mistake that lots of organizations make, deprioritizing soft skills. They see that individual contributor who is great at making widgets. So they make that person the head of the widget factory team. Right. It's almost like saying, you know, you're a great violinist, so go conduct the entire orchestra. They're two very different things. Every organization in the world, around the globe, should have management training in person, in-house, that is mandatory as a threshold for you to manage a team. I was talking to someone, coaching them around a situation they're facing in a mid-sized tech firm around bullying. And they said that the situation was handled, but the leader was now retaliating. And guess what, Rebecca? The reason why the leader's retaliating is partly because maybe they have some personality stuff they need to deal with, but also because I don't know of any organization that teaches leaders about the five or seven bullets that are retaliation at work. The EEOC has 
clear definitions of what retaliation might be. So even if you're a leader and you want to change, you might inadvertently be doing something that feels like retaliation to your employees. So it's people aren't trained about this stuff. So here's a definition of bullying. This is bullying in our workplace. I think that Sherm said 28% of organizations have policies around bullying and only 4% have discrete policies for bullying and guidelines uh, that they publish for bullying specifically. So yeah, that that's concerning to me that organizations are fueled by people and yet people skills are sometimes the last things that we teach. That is my concern for the future. I guess I do have one. <laughs> I guess I do have one. I knew I'd get it out of you. Yeah, you squeezed it out of me. <laughs> but I think that kind of goes back to, and I'm going to post this link out for listeners too, around the Peter Principle mm-hmm. organizations and recognizing this person's really good at widget making, uh, developing applications, what have you. Let's put them in charge of everybody. And, and yeah. there's going to be a point at which they're going to hit a ceiling on the skills that they actually have yeah. versus the skills they need to be a manager mm-hmm. um, and lead people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. I've got an, another thing that I want to tie on to that too, because mm-hmm. it just entered my brain uh-huh. and I would love to know what your thoughts are about this. Yeah. Some of this is my personal opinion. Okay. But I also think there's some data to back this up. Mm-hmm. I just don't have it in front of me. Okay. <laughs> but um, the, the focus on um, individual success. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how do you as an individual become successful uh, versus how do teams become successful? I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on that or if you've had similar observations. Yeah, well, this is interesting because we have a scarcity model in organizations and it's not as much prescribed now as it is assumed. I remember a year long ago in a land far, far away, I was a school teacher oh. and awesome. I uh, and this trainer came in and he asked this question that really rocked my world and changed my life. He asked how many A's are there in the classroom? And all of the teachers in the training, we were kind of like, what do you mean? What do you mean? He was like, how many A's are there? And and he said, well, and then because we couldn't answer, he gave us the answer. He said, there are many possible A's as there are students. And what we assume is there has to be a winner and a loser. So that's the type of question that I lead organizations to ask is how many vice presidents are there in an organization? As many people as can be vice president as needed for the business goal and as they deserve according to their work ethic. So we we falsely assume that there has to be a traditional org structure and that that org structure by default pits people against each other because it narrows as it grows. So it assumes that there's one vice president, there's one person pulling in a huge salary or just a few number of people. There are a few number of senior leaders. So yeah, I do think that focus on individual success is assumed and built into the infrastructure. If we can get away from that and understand that everyone can get that huge bonus and raise at the end of the year, because everyone can be successful and really kind of end our subscription to that scarcity model that there's going to be only two people who get promoted. There's only going to be three parking space. Well, maybe there'll only be three parking spaces, but you know, everyone can, can grow and be financially successful if the organization is successful. Yeah. The model is prescribed. I think it's part of the, the infrastructure of organizations now. And I think it's partly the assumption we grow up with from our schooling that there's going to be one valedictorian, right. there's going to be one salutatorian, one person's going to get the prize. Everyone can get the prize. 
That's what we want. And I just want to say another thing, Rebecca, I, I, a lot of people rail against millennials and say they just want quick raises and promotions. Yes. And they, if they deserve it, they should. Yes. Yes, they should want. That's that's the thing that we all want. That's an, to me, that's the most idiotic judgment okay. I've ever heard. Like right. they just want quick raises and promotions in a corner office. Yes, they do. That is actually why they're coming to a building every day to do things for you. Right. I think that there's a lot of assumptions we have in judgments. And if we can dismiss that, then it opens us up to a larger model that's not about individual success. Absolutely. And I can say this too, as a Gen Xer, yeah. uh, when I was young and early in my career, I think mm-hmm. I wanted the same things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I don't think that we think about, I think a lot of young folks in general over time have had a lot of ambition yeah. enter the workforce. I yeah. think maybe what the potential difference is, is that you have a millennial generation that was raised very differently. Yes. Um, and get, gotten more of the message of the world is your oyster, more exactly. of an em- empathetic environment in which they were raised, where I always say Gen X was the get over it generation yes. because we were always told to get over everything. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and the other thing that you have to realize is that um, younger people are growing up where they see more billionaires under 40 than ever before. Oh, yes. In our generation, the older you got, the more successful you were. Whereas now, because of technology, it's kind of flipped the script. Whereas yes. if you're young and you know how to build an app because you grew up in that technology natively, then you can be super successful. There's a woman who gets paid millions of dollars a year to show her hands unwrapping gifts on YouTube. Right. So That's right. The, the world is your oyster. So yeah, it's real. They see that I can get on YouTube and work from home and make a million dollars by doing something that some people would consider ridiculous. Right. So their expectations are true and real according to the environment in which they've grown up. And there's a lot that we can learn from that. You know, I'm learning every day from millennials. Right. Also now we have a whole new generation entering the workforce, which is Gen Z. Mm-hmm. who even more so grew up in that social media environment yeah. and that constant demand to be successful and what success might look like based on what they see on social media. Exactly. I've got whole shows that I've planned coming up, future episodes to discuss that interesting scenario for, yeah. for Gen Z. Yeah. And I think for us, we can learn from how we felt when our parents judged our choices. The more quickly we can validate and adopt some elements of that perspective, the more quickly we can bridge the great divide. I, as a 40-something person, have the benefit of growing up through generations. And I can see how that lack of acknowledgement of that perspective can be damaging to a generational divide. So I can say, hey, something about what you're saying is true. Let me learn from it. Right. Well, I think that kind of goes back to that point of diversity, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. Intergenerational. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's important. Essential for innovation. Yeah, there you go. We'll do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, hey, I would love to kind of get your final thought about organizations, technology, the future, our current state. What is your last thought for today? I would say, talking about our current state, let's start there. Um, We're in a situation which feels like crisis to many people, and that's super valid. Given that we're in the situation, to be as emotionally intelligent as possible. As leaders, we want to, first of all, look at our team members and say, let me validate any emotions you have around that and help you with that so that you understand that I see you as a human and as a person. And then the second thing I think is really important. This is the situation. We're in it. 
what can we learn from it? What are the things that we can learn to be better leaders and to be better organizations and to be better people? Uh, Again, what I see is that big name brand organizations are responding to protect their team members and the world against something that they feel might be dangerous. That's amazing. Uh, That is so heartening. And, you know, right now in terms of work, there's a lot that we can learn from this. There are a lot of learnings about work, remote work and specifically work from home. There's a lot of learning that we're going to have about the ways to uh, redo conferences. There's a lot of work. Some new industries are going to arise. People are at home and they have time on their hands. So there's going to be an entrepreneur somewhere who's going to invent something that's going to change the world. So, um, yeah, I feel like right now in this moment, both as leaders and organizations, let's recognize and acknowledge the um, emotional responses our team members are having around that. And in terms of exercising our own emotional intelligence, understand what it is and let's now look for the learning inside of this so that we can grow and be better. Great message, Jay. So Jay Guilford, thank you so much for joining me for a fantastic conversation. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for having me on. I think one thing we can learn from Jay's experience is this. We all have the power to reinvent ourselves to make a difference. Jay transformed himself from someone who had a negative impact on others to someone who inspires other leaders to do better. This is a type of choice we all have, to learn from our mistakes and choose to make a different and often better impact on the world. When we think about leadership in particular, I believe we all have the ability to bring our experiences, strengths, and knowledge to practice leadership exactly where we are, regardless of our circumstances or our title. So I ask you, what is the difference you'd like to make? What would you decide to transform about yourself for the better? Whatever that is, go do it. Take your experiences, your expertise, your motivation, and make the world a little better. The future is ours to shape together. So go on. Go help shape the future. You can learn more about Jay Guilford and the amazing work he does by visiting coworkslead.com. That's coworkslead.com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.